Hey, what's going on? This is David Avalon with another episode of Breaking the Guard with my co-host Robert Drysdale and today's very special guest, Daniel Bolelli. He is a writer, a teacher, a martial artist, a, a podcaster, just a really uh, modern-day renaissance man. And I actually know of Daniel through... Um, he was one of the first subscribers to my email list like back like in 2010 when I started and he has ordered all my courses. And then uh, I realized he is uh, over time that he's very accomplished. He's been on the Joe Rogan podcast. He has been on the Adam Carolla podcast and a bunch of others. He has written many books. Uh, he, uh, he's like a history major historian rather teaches at universities, and his subject is martial arts, so he has a lot of books written, very interesting, and in our chat, uh, Rob, being a fellow historian, him and they go over different methods of teaching and uh, ways of academia, and he has an interesting uh, backstory in that his wife passed away, unfortunately, when left him with a one-year-old baby. And he talks about the challenges that he had to go through, going through that, as well as competing in MMA and coaching in MMA at the same time. So it was a really interesting talk. I was really happy to finally meet Daniele and and speak with him. I think uh, there's a lot to learn here. And uh, once again, we don't talk about (laughs) COVID-19 at all. (laughs) <laughs> so if you're tired of everybody talking about that, um, we talk about a lot of subjects here, particularly one that I found of interest was uh, the notion that competitors come out through like people who compete are naturally born to compete. And Daniele confesses that he is horribly afraid of competing, yet he still went to it. So I, if you are someone who struggles with competition nerves or maybe you've refrained from it, this might be a good chat for you to listen to because you'll get the perspective from somebody who really isn't a natural at all. And in fact, me and Robert make the case that very few people are, but you can still gain a lot through competition. Anyhow, enough pre-framing. Go ahead and listen to enjoy. Before we get started, I'd like to just give a shout out to myself. <laughs> and if you go to ffacoach.com shop, you can visit uh, my sale. I've been doing this sale since we've been self-quarantined. And uh, pretty much nearly everything is up to 66% off. Most things are half 50% off. And uh, I'll probably run it for just about another week since this thing looks like it's starting to come to an end. Uh, so if you want to pick up courses at a great discount, all of them, all my courses, Kimura Trap System, Black Belt Psychology, Drysdale Cradle Series, all of them are on sale and if you get all of them at once in my super deal you can get it 66% off for everything so it's a huge savings like six to seven hundred dollars off so definitely want to check that out go to ffacoach.com shop to learn more hello everyone i'm robert Trisdale. I'm here with my co-host, David Avalan. You are watching Breaking the Guard. I have lost count which episode this is, is, Dave. I can't keep up. But we have a very, very special guest, good friend, um, academic, martial artist, overall badass, 
Mr. Daniele Bolelli. You may know him from the History on Fire podcast. And uh, Daniele, we've been talking about this for so long, having you on our podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. That's awesome, man. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, you know, I was familiar with you, Danielle, because I think you were one of the first people that actually like subscribed to my email list back like in 2010. And uh, that was even before I knew who you were. But then I had seen you through time. You were on the Joe Rogan podcast. You were on Adam Carolla. You've gone all over the place. You, had a, you also have the other podcast. I think it was your first one, The Drunken Taoist, correct? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I remember way back in the day, I... I actually reviewed some of your DVD for like some Italian martial art magazine. Yes, yes. Ever since I was always in touch because I'm like, man, this guy has awesome instructionals. He's really good at explaining stuff. So I was always a big fan. And uh, so that was funny how later you were like, hey, but I check out your podcast. I'm like, oh, no way. That's cool. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Daniele, you have like, um, you know, a, a, a background in, uh, academia, you're a professor at UCLA, is that correct? Yeah, Not you teach. I taught at UCLA for a while. Uh, I think it's been a while since I taught there, but now I teach uh, the primary places are Santa Monica College and Caltech Long Beach. And you teach history, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's the, what, what, uh, what part of history? Uh, let's see, what, what period? That? Mainly is US, uh, Native American, and history of religions. Amazing, amazing. I bet you would love to have like a history of martial arts class. You know, I've done that. I've done that before. That's the one I did at UCLA. I, okay, okay. That was actually pretty funny because I went up to, I was like, who's going to allow me to do this? History department, probably not. I tried a couple. I went to the Asian American Studies Department and, you know, I'm not exactly Asian and I have never <laughs> taken a class in Asian M. And I'm like, hey guys, I can teach you this course. I can teach it. I can do a good job. And it's not that you have somebody else who's going to teach it. So it's either me or nobody. So you either take because you think he's going to bring you students or you don't. But, you know, it's, it was a very non-competitive thing because there's no one else that's going to do it. And so they were like, yeah, he's going to bring us students. We are on board. I was like, yes. Yeah. You know, that was a part of the problem. When I was at UNLV, I wanted to do a history of martial arts. I want to write my thesis in that direction. But very quickly, I found there was so much resistance because... It's not something that, you know, that people study, you know, it's not a, a common theme to find in academia, right? As in, like, a department is not going to have someone qualified to guide you through your thesis, right? So yeah. they constantly push you to what they do, right? That seems to be, like, the, the norm. That's how it goes. In fact, that's why it's fun to, you know, I fit in academia and I don't. I mean, I always found, like, sneaky ninja ways to get some of my stuff done in there. But the academic world, objectively, is very stifling. You know, it's very resistant to change. It's very old school. It's kind of, even when they do cover good stuff, and they do, they always somehow find a way to make it really tedious. So it's, it's kind of a challenge to, to navigate around uh, the limits of academia and still do something enjoyable. Um, I found it very bureaucratic like yeah. excessively bureaucratic not fun uh it was more bureaucracy than learning that was like the biggest frustration i was spending more time dealing with like stuff that wasn't interesting not i'm not even learning than i was actually you know challenging myself right but uh let me ask you this boy you were uh were you uh um you were a martial artist before yeah. you were academic mm -hmm. you've been training martial arts your whole life right i started when did i start i started when i was 17 
So, so tell us about like your journey in martial arts and how did that lead to, you know, your, 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 to just like a brief synopsis of your life for people who don't know you. So I started training when I was still in Italy. You know, I was born in 74. So 17 would have been 1991. So that's before even the first UFC, before MMA became a thing or anything. So I started out the way everybody did back then. Is like you watch Bruce Lee movies, you think mm, Chinese martial arts are the way to go. I tried a bunch and I actually had a good time. You know, some stuff was a complete waste of time. Some was actually fun. And, um, and then slowly, as time went by, I started shifting away from that and progressively more to our combat sports. Um, started submission grappling, jiu-jitsu, boxing, little bit of wrestling. I was never that good at it, but some wrestling at the judo. So that's kind of where I'm at today. I'm primarily, you know, I'm, I got tired of getting punched in the head. So I like more, you know, jiu-jitsu and judo seem like a slightly more long-term prospect than, uh, you know, I love boxing. Boxing is fun, but, you know, sparring is always, the thing I always found tricky with boxing was that if you go too soft, it's not realistic. If you go too hard, you just jack yourself up every time you train. So finding that fine line is way harder than it is when you grapple, where you can just go a little more full on. And, you know, as long as you're not a dick and crank the submissions, then usually you get out mostly unskated or the stuff, the injuries you get are to your limbs, not your brain. So I tend to favor that. But that's as far as <clears throat> that. The, that's kind of the martial art journey. Along the way, actually, way back in 2008, I think, I did a couple of uh, pro-MMA in Italy. Now, pro-MMA in Italy back then was like the far west. It was like in 1994. So it was kind of, you know, pro-MMA is sort of a joke in that sense. But it was an um, interesting experience because I'm psychologically really not built that way. Um, you know, some people are really relaxed going into competition. For whatever reason, as long as he was grappling, I was okay. But when there was striking involved, it scared the living hell out of me. So it was an interesting process because I would have to find a way to operate at a high level when psychologically I'm just shut down by fear. I feel all the tension, the muscle cramping down, the breathing shallow. So I found that interesting because it's like, oh, damn, how do I play in this environment where my body's, my mind actually is not being my friend, you know? Absolutely. That's that, definitely a challenging thing to go through. That's why I think we talked about it in the last episode with uh, Alberto Crane is that whenever someone competes as a coach, we're always immensely proud of them because of the, the mental hardship it is to get in there. And it doesn't matter that like the comp competition you're going against doesn't really matter in that because you don't know, right? Like you're saying, oh, the, the level in Italy is whatever, but that doesn't, you can't know that for certain. You're guessing that, right? <laughs> like before you're actually in the combat, you don't, you could be facing the next Hicks and Gracie and you, you don't know it yet. So it is absolutely, uh, I, I think for most people, the natural reaction is terror. Because yeah. <laughs> I always tell people like, oh, you know, I get, I get street fights all the time. I'm like, it's very different. Because a street fight is spontaneous. Yep. You know, there's right. no time to prepare, so it's easy. You just, uh, and you, you just deal with it. Yep. But when they tell you, it's more like in school, when they're like, oh, I'm going to fight you in the playground, 3 o'clock tomorrow, and you're, you're like, oh, my God, what's going to happen here? You know? Except the stakes are much higher and <laughs> more serious in the cage fight. Yeah, the so, anticipation is what kills you. It's that thinking about it. That, and I'm a pro at 
making my mind wander in 10, 32 different directions, which is horrendous for staying calm and collected. I think I'm the only person ever who would weigh less by five times than by the weigh-ins. <laughs> After the weigh-ins, I would about 12 times, so I would be like, I'm actually lighter than I was yesterday. <laughs> That's terrible. But, well, I mean, it's like, that, I mean, you're describing like what every fighter deal, uh, deals with, right? I, I think we, we agree here that not everyone deals with the pressure the same way. It's higher for some people. I see, I've seen people that are like there's so much in their element it's not even a, it's not much of an effort to them to get into that fight mode like to deal with all that because if mma didn't exist these guys would be doing motocross or skydiving like they'd be doing something else that's nuts like they just they're adrenaline junkies like they enjoy that uh but tell me walk us through like what was the thought process of going through that that, that dealing with the difficulty the anxiety because I feel like that's something that some so many of us do. I dealt with it too. I'm sure Dave has as well. Uh, well, how was it, man? To walk us through that experience. I think for me, because my personality, there's a bit of a kind of nerdy streak to it. I spent, you know, I was an only child before internet growing up, so I spent all my time reading books in my own head, imagining stuff. So I was kind of this. Uh, I was very comfortable being a happy little nerd. And, uh, you know, there are clear limits to that life, right? There's, uh, I felt that in order to grow as a human being, I need to put myself in a direction that did not come natural to me. So, you know, doing, in, like some people are terrified of public speaking. I don't give a crap. I, you know, you put a mic in front of me, I can talk in front of anybody and I have no problem. But for me, whereas somebody else may be completely relaxed about, uh, you know, athletic physical endeavor, I would tend to stress. You know, I play basketball and I stress when I play basketball. Like I get major performance anxiety when it comes to athletic stuff. So to shift for me to shift to martial to combat sports was interesting because my temperament was really not my thing. Yeah. And that's probably why I liked it, because I felt that it gave an edge to my personality that I did not have naturally. You know, it's something that would really help me grow. So it was definitely a struggle. I mean, I love training. Training was awesome, but the competition part was horrendous. But and every single time I went through it, I would be like, "Okay, this is the last time. Just get through this one, and you never have to do this again. Just come on, one more time." And of course, like a month later, it's like, "Okay, let's do it again." And um, so it's trippy because I never felt like I mastered it, like I got over it. You know, you always hear those cool stories of somebody who's really scared of something, then they work hard at it, and then everything is great. Never felt that way. I felt that over time, I made it less paralyzing terror and, you know, be able to work through it, but never like I overcame it or that didn't show up. It always showed up. It was always bad. It was just making it 2% less bad so that I would have a little breathing room, but that was it. You know? And I find, you know, everybody's wired differently. I see like, like my girlfriend when, you know, she fights for one championship and she's a freak mentally. I mean, it's like she took a nap right before her fight. I'm like, how the hell do you take a nap? That's just like, I can sleep for a week. How yeah. do you take a nap? Right. So, you know, people are wired in different ways. I think it's an interesting point that you bring because a lot of people assume that if you compete, that means, oh, you were just built for that, you know, and yeah. it came naturally to you. That's why you do well with it. But 
I'm glad you brought that up because, as you said, it wasn't something that came naturally. In fact, it was the total opposite. But that was the lure of it, is that you wanted to step out of your comfort zone and challenge yourself. Because when you're describing yourself, I'm like, that's kind of like how I was when I was a kid. Mm. I was very shy. I was terribly shy. And public speaking was a nightmare for me. Right. I, you know, I, I think I've already said this multiple times to Robert, but like I remember when I was in like seventh grade, I had to like read an English paper that was just one paragraph, and that paper was like, <laughs> 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 it was like a butterfly was going to take off, you know. And I remember just total, totally terrified of public speaking. But oddly enough, competing, I was fine. Like. I, I did well competing, even though I was really shy. Right. And I think because I grew up with my brother, yeah. I was very competitive. Mm-hmm. So me and him fought all the time and Bruce Lee movies and stuff like that. I did Jeet Kune Do when I started. So mm-hmm. like that, I had that background also. But like competing, I always did pretty well. And I could take naps and stuff like that. But it was like the public speaking side that got me drawn out. But I'm also someone who's an engineer by trade, so I'm analytical as well. So I understand what you mean when you start analyzing all these different things and all the variable outcomes that can happen and what you're going to do in each possible situation. And, you, and you'll never sleep. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, a, terrible. it's you're in, You become your worst enemy because you're just making your life way harder than it needs to be because you're not really being in the moment and able to flow. You are like projected into the future, worrying, thinking about what can go wrong and, you know, way too much. Yes. That's why it's probably good sometimes to have a coach who does all that, to think about all the things that can go wrong and figure out solution and the game plan. But the person who implements them is a different person who's more can be like, okay, that's the game plan. I've got to just go out and do it. You know, it's, it helps. I, I want to, I want to talk about that, the coaching thing, because I agree with you. I think that's where a good coach comes in to, mm-hmm. you know, someone you can trust. But before yeah. that, you know, you mentioned something about, um, you know, the, 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 some people are wired for this and some wired for that. I've always been, some people disagree. This is like a huge debate in, in the sciences, right? The nature nurture debate. To me, it's the most fascinating of all questions. To me, this is more interesting than the universe. Some people are, oh, the most interesting questions are in outer space. Like, I don't think so. <laughs> I think there are questions that relate to our behavior, right? Like, why do we do A and not B, right? And these are, these are fascinating questions, but I'm of the opinion that, you know, they, it's only the level in which nature and nurture interact, yeah. right? It's what, to what degree and in what. But there are certain things about me that are I, I feel very, very secure are from birth. Like, I have always been attracted to combat. But I've also been like you. I'm not like Dave. Like, I could take – it got to the point where I could take a nap. But it was a long process. I used to cry before I went to bed. And I'd cry in the morning when I woke up before a competition, you know. But – do you believe that these things are not just emotional, physical, obviously, everyone acknowledges that, the emotional, but do you believe they also have to do with certain types of intelligence? I believe that certain types of intelligence are exacerbated in some people and others are like very, very poorly developed and they have to work really hard to develop that. Do you believe that people that are underdeveloped in some kinds of intelligence, right, yeah. can work on it and improve on it? I mean, improve, yeah, sure. I think hard work always pays off in some measure. The question is how much, you know, because you can take somebody who's really not talented for something and they work hard and they will get way better than where they started and they will get, you know, probably pretty decent at whatever it is they are doing. But they are never going to be at the place where somebody was a raw talent for it and on top of it, they work hard 
that just not even a, a Mozart, right? A Mozart, born in Austria. Father was a musician. Right. Probably had an had a brain for it. Had yeah. the, the the work ethic. Like that's when you get a Mozart when everything aligns, you know. Yeah, my dad once interviewed uh, Michael Jordan. So they sat down and they were chatted and. And my dad was like, look, I, I remember hearing your stuff and it's so inspirational, the whole, you know, I became Michael Jordan because of all these failures and I miss uh, three gazillion shots and that's why I make the important words. My dad was like, look, I get missed gaz three gazillion shots too, but I did not become Michael Jordan. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, that's a lot. But it was true, you know, it's like not everybody's going to get the same results. Yeah, you have to fail, you have to work hard. But realistically, and again, it's not a negative thing because it's like you will get better than where you started. There's no argument. You know, hard work will pay off to some degree. But it's kind of like taking a 90-pound woman and say, look, I'll train you into martial arts and you're going to be safe in the middle of a biker gang with chains. It's like, no, that's not going to happen. You know, it's like, I don't care how hard you train. You're not going to be, you know, you're going to be way safer than where you were before, but not up to that level. That's just not going to work. I think there's like nature give you some, it's kind of like the cards you are given in a poker game, right? Yes. It gives you some limits. How you play them, you can get really creative and get really good at playing them to the best possible abilities. Yeah. But if somebody got four aces right off the bat, well, you're not going to compete with that. That just, you yeah. able, you know. And nature is not fair like that. Like, you know, because like if you, no matter how much you dream of being a basketball player, if you're born short, yeah. same thing, if you're really tall, you're never going to be a good gymnast. Right. If you're six seven, you're six nine. There's no way on earth you're going to be a good gymnast. There's nothing you can do about it. You know, yep. it's not. So, um, but I, I, to me, this is interesting, Bolin. I want to because me and Dave talk a lot about this, but I wanted to pick your brain because, um, like, this to me is like the most underrated aspect of of martial arts is mental training, right? Because everyone there's a hyper focus on physical. There's yep. a million different ways of working out out there. Like too many, if you ask me. Technique, like. If you type in BJJ techniques on YouTube, you're going to get like 8 billion results. Like it's, it's too much of anything. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to like how do we better the mind, because we, we agree that we can improve on it, right? There's no methodology. If, right. When it comes to the mind, we're at a loss. We don't even know where to begin. Like we don't have an answer like this is how you train your mind. And I always talk about visualization, you know, like me, me and Dave talk about this. He talks about mental morphism, like imagine you're a bullet when you're taking someone down, right? Yep. Like little things like that. Do you, uh, what's your take on it? Do you have any uh, suggestions or uh, what would you recommend for people that are trying to improve on themselves mentally to overcome difficulties like anxiety, for example? I mean, I think the stuff you guys are mentioning, like visualization is huge, right? It's something that not just for fight for anything, right? That's a if you don't see yourself succeeding at something, it's very hard to succeed at that thing. You know, being able to, it's like fake it till you make it a lot. You know, you need to be able to convince yourself that it's doable, even when it's not, and you know that it's not yet, but you can start creating a path to leading. And again, not just the, okay, tomorrow I'm going to be the greatest in the world, because it's, we all know it's bullshit. It's not going to be true. You don't believe yourself. You need to kind of slowly and incrementally start giving yourself realistic goals where you can slowly then reality convinces you that, oh, it did work out. Okay, now I can go one inch more, you know, and so that's a big one. But I really think um, not everybody responds to the same stuff. 
So, you know, for some people, meditation is great. It works beautiful for them. For somebody else, it's really not going to do it. It's just going to drive them crazy to sit too still. So they may have to do something that's a little more active, maybe some kind of movement-driven meditation. Even doing something like Tai Chi may be able to be something that kind of calms them down and put them in that space. Um, I'm really curious, but I haven't looked enough into sports psychology. Like, what do those guys do? Because that's their whole field, right? Like, what do sports psychologists do to get a good athlete and get them to perform to the best possible of their abilities? You know, I heard some of their tricks, some of their ideas, but I would, I would love to hear a lot more than, than what I'm familiar with. Yeah, it is a good point. You bring that everybody's different, right? Because... That's the thing that makes it trickier. There, like Rob's saying, there's no like step-by-step plan on how to improve your mind because you can have a pair of twins and their personalities will totally you know, diverge. And some people work really well with positive reinforcement. And then some people need the negative reinforcement to rile them up yeah. and then get in there. I have some guys that when they're going to fight, I need to slap them in the face a few times to get them amped. And other people, they're cool as a cucumber, you know, they're, they don't need anything. They don't need any talk or any motivation. I know like when people need to get riled up, that's my brother. My brother will, will slap him around and go, all right, let's go, you know, fuck this guy up. Go high. If, if they're more chill, it's like, you're with me. Like, we're, we're relaxed, you know, nothing's going to happen. We're cool. We're going to get there, have fun. Yeah. But I, I guess that goes back to what Robert was saying and you were uh, parroting as well, having a good coach that has that relationship with you, that's able to understand the things that motivate you yep. because then they're able to fine tune because there is a performance enhancement, a legal PED, right? That will help you as having a coach, no matter how good you are by yourself, a coach, a good coach will push yep. you further. For sure. For sure. hundred percent. So I know I have competed a couple times alone and it was always terrible. You know, and even I was healthy and nothing wrong with me. I was out of focus because I was doing dealing with stuff that I'm not normally having to deal with. Like, oh, I have to get the sponsor uniform, this or something like that. And it's like those little things you think like, oh, that's not a big deal. But it is because you're doing everything you can to try to stay in that zone. And everything that pulls you out of it, it you know, it's going to take you time to try to get back in. And I think that's one of the things that's really underdeveloped in MMA. Because when you think about it, you know, most people who are coaches, they have it. there's not exactly a scientific process to get them to be great coaches. You know, many of them are great coaches because they are smart, they are good people, they kind of wing it and they figured out some stuff along the way. But, you know, there's this idea that if you are a good fighter, you're going to make a great coach. And it's like, no, those are two completely different skills. You know, it's like maybe, you know, maybe you happen to be one of those people who can build boats, but maybe not. And, and there's, whereas for being a good fighter, there is a somewhat of a clear path of what needs to be done to get there, to actually be a great coach really seems to be more left up to the individual being smart and figuring it out for themselves than really having a, a solid way to build it. I mean, part of it is objectively difficult because part of it is who you are. Kind of goes back to the Robert's nature nurture thing, right? You give uh, somebody who doesn't have the personality for it all the tips in the world on how to be a great coach, and they are still not going to be a great coach, you know, because they don't have that ability to communicate, to have empathy, to relate to their athletes, all of those things that really can't be taught. It's, you know, uh, it's who you are. 
you know, uh, just to build off your point there, but like I, I've, you know, my life, I've met a lot of good coaches and a lot of good fighters that did not make good coaches. And I've, and I've seen it all. You know, the interesting thing is many times the people who are exceptional coaches, they had no idea why they were good coaches. They couldn't explain it to you. Just like the best fighters, they can't explain you a technique. It's very common. I'm not going to mention names. The people are like, what's that throw you do? Oh, this one? And he does it. I'm like, what are you doing? I'm like, no, just do this. Right. And they, don't, they can't explain it. They just do it. Yeah. Right. And I've noticed there are coaches that they're – because it, coaching involves a very high degree of social intelligence. Mm-hmm. Going back to the intelligence. It's not, it's not just technique. People think te- technique is the minor factor. It's social intelligence. And the people who are best at it are being able to control the room. They controlled it like they were like a maestro. You know, in, in an opera, man, they just had absolute control of everything. They had no, if you ask them, like, so what's going on here? Like, they're not even aware what you're, they don't even know what you're talking about. Like, you're trying to get the, the what is the, what's the, the secret? And they're not hiding it from you. They really don't know what they're doing. It's just something that is very, it's part of their personality. It's crazy to me. Yeah, it's kind of like if you ever have, uh, you know, the stereotypical grandma who's awesome at cooking and you ask her for a recipe. And yeah. it's the most frustrating thing ever because they have no idea how to explain it to you. <laughs> well, you know, it's like, how many minutes do I need to cook this thing? It's like, until it's brownish. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> Five minutes, eight minutes, it's like, yeah, you just look at it and then yeah, you know. Uh, I look so at annoying. it. It's so annoying. It's so annoying. You know, I think that what, what, this is like what, what I want to do is, I would like, I want to sit down with these people, man, and I want to like interview them. I want to talk to them until I can get, because the answers to them sound very obvious. That's why they don't talk about it, because we don't talk about things that are obvious to us. Yeah. Right. They're, they're obvious to us, but that doesn't mean that they're not, uh, they're obvious to other people. So a lot of times, these exceptional individuals in whatever field you're in, they're holding on to these like these golden nuggets, like they have these like these gems. But they don't think of that. Like, they don't always see that that's the reason why they're successful because they just take it for granted. It's just part, it's so ingrained in their psychology. They can't even think that what you mean, not everyone has that. What are you talking about? Totally. Totally. I had a funny experience with that. It's like my my judo is just god awful, right? I'm not a particularly good judo player. I mean, I know my stuff, but I'm really not that good. But times when I trained with beginners and I'm showing them stuff, actually not even beginners, even some people who are semi-decent who maybe halfway through their process to a black, they'll, at the end of class, they'll be like, oh my God, I learned more about judo today than I have in the last two years. I'm like, how is that even possible? My judo sucks. <laughs> how did you post that chest? And then I realized, oh, because I break it down in a way that actually helps people learn. I'm not particularly good at it but I understand it very well and I can communicate it really well and then the other guy who's a phenomenal player eh, his communication is okay but it's not that great and so for somebody who's just trying to learn he's not helping them and I'm like wow that is two very different tracks you know the ability to perform and be a great athlete and the ability to communicate and coach somebody Again, you may get lucky and somebody may develop both things, but they are not antithetical. You know, one can yeah. be both, but it's, they are entirely different fields. Um, that's why, you know, even in think about most professional sports, there are a ton of great coaches who are, if they were players at all, maybe they weren't like top of the game or maybe they aren't even players. And yeah, they are, you know, because they communicate. A lot of it boils down to communication. A lot of it boils down to reading people and figuring out exactly 
what you guys were saying, like what energy does this person respond to? Does cracking jokes help them relax and understand or does it distract them? Does it, do they need a more wordy explanation or they need quicken to the point? Do they, you know, and figuring out, reading that person to communicate, not for, because again, the same communication style may not work for everybody. And so yeah. to the people in front of you, that takes, you need to think on your feet. You know, you can't be thinking too long about it. You need to be able to respond rather fast. And again, that's something that can be taught to some degree, but a lot of it is uh, your emotional intelligence, you know, your ability to read people a lot. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I agree. And it, it's case by case. That's the crazy. That's why coaching BJJ to me is so hard because you're dealing with a room of like God knows how many people. But like MMA, it's, I feel it's easier because you, you should have less fighters, right? And then you're able to know. And the people differ because not everyone reacts to the same things. With some people, when they have like a tantrum on the mats, you gotta like you gotta like you gotta bring them aside and have a chat with them. You know, they have all these emotional issues. They have all this baggage. It's very common, man. They have all this baggage with them, and you gotta take that into consideration when you're talking to them. Or this person loses motivation. You have to know what to say that's gonna motivate them, right? Versus saying the wrong thing that's gonna like push them further down that track. So it requires you're right, like a very high degree of. Uh, uh, I mentioned social social intelligence, but like also of emotional intelligence, like understanding, you know, wh uh, what that person is dealing with. To me, that's it's fascinating because it has nothing to do with fighting, per, you know, not not directly, indirectly, of course, but it's such a huge element in the equation of creating that partnership that will get you a UFC title. Absolutely. Like for example, like when earlier I was mentioning now, uh, I really enjoyed David's video when I saw his instructional on YouTube the first few times. You know, he's doing it for everybody, right? He's not tailoring it to somebody because it's a video you put out on YouTube. So you don't have somebody that you are tailoring the teaching to. But for that stuff, for something that's applied to everyone, I found this balance perfect, right? Because he was explaining just enough to cover every single detail that I felt I needed to get the technique right, but not so much that you start zoning out and you lose attention. And so that's kind of the perfect baseline. But then, of course, when you have people in front of you, you tweak that baseline depending on who's in front of you. And with somebody, he may hype up the explanation a little more. With somebody, he may cut it down. With somebody, he may explain it with a joke. With somebody, not. But, you know, I think the baseline is super important. And then that ability to modify it is what makes you great in, on, on an interpersonal level rather than, you know, the, the YouTube level, which, you know, I always found David's stuff to be masterful in that regard. And then you take that and you adapt it person to person, and and now you got something amazing. Yeah, there there is. Uh, I think there's a there a formula could be created where you could say this is how you teach everybody because we do have instructor classes mm -hmm. at our gym that we teach our coaches how to teach properly. Thanks. But you, there is variance in what you're saying. But what ideally what we're always trying to do when we're teaching is to create the proper mood for the student. Because yep. someone, in order to learn, has to be relaxed yep. and, uh, and receptive. If they are stressed or they're self-conscious, learning is impaired, right? Uh, if they feel they're being judged, learning can be impaired, you know? So that's why a lot of people resort to humor. Because when people start laughing, that means they relax. Because they're no longer taking themselves as seriously. That means they're a little more receptive to learning. You know, like, I, I know going through school, mostly, like, when I was, I, I studied as an electrical engineer. And unfortunately, 
in that field, there's not a lot of funny people. <laughs> right? They're just boring as hell. <laughs> and in my case, most of them didn't know how to speak English. English was like a fourth language they didn't know. So it was pretty awful, you know. I remember I had one of my, my, my colleagues who would say, I thought math was a universal language. <laughs> because what? it wasn't. Right. Nobody understood anything going on. Right? But when it's too dry, like, you're like, oh, you're not investing in it. But whenever a professor, like those rare ones, would make you laugh in, you know, in an academic environment, you love them. Because like, oh, my God, finally, somebody who you know, could not take himself so seriously. You know? So I think when you look at most of the great coaches, they always have a sense of humor. They're all different. You, know? like you have someone like Donna Hur who's kind of like dry and sarcastic. But you have others that are more jovial. You know? I and think I, it's sorry, that's but that's the tricky part that you know you can say that right, and it's a very good point, and it applies to everyone. But then you just tell people, it's like, hey, if you mix in humor into it, it helps a bunch. But somebody has just an awful sense of humor. Their jokes are flat. They try. It, it's worse than if they were serious, right? Because they are yes. trying too hard, and you're like, oh Jesus, this is just terrible. And your the advice you gave them was the right advice. They just can't pull it off. And you know, and again, what do you do then? It's like, let me teach you humor 101. Like, <laughs> no, you, you. But you know, a lot of this has to do with the level of maturity that the person has to, like fighters, they, they, they evolve. I mean, they're not just growing technically, they're growing as humans too. So, you know, like you have to gauge that. Like you can't treat your 16 year old, you know, the same way you treat your 35 year old dad who's about to retire. You know, yeah. they're very different in that regard. But to me, this is, this is fascinating because it's such an important dynamic. So I'm always like observing, you know, the, the, the coaches that I admire and, and they, they have like a few things in common and they're always very good psychologists, whether they realize it or not, they're outstanding psychologists. Yeah. They, they could, they could, they could be professors. They just don't know the, the technicalities of, of the field, but they know people better than, you know, you would ever learn from, from books. Yeah. And I think that's the same, that one applies to everything. Right, it's like what you're teaching is almost secondary than than that skill to read yeah. people, to read the mood of the room, to adapt it, do all those things. And and again, to some people, it's very obvious. It's like, well, of course, how else would you be? But then you look at so many people are just terrible at it, and you're like, oh, I guess that is a skill. That is kind of a gift where you're like, okay, that's good to have it when you have it is a treasure because it really applies to i mean it applies if you have kids right the way you raise your kids is like that and you know you have to read the kids because the same thing that may have worked with kid a you try it with kid b and it's a disaster and you need to adapt it and change for that personality and so it always keeps you on your toes you know it's not like the the seven steps to being a good father or a good coach <laughs> ever it's like you know, that's a guideline, there's something there, but then you have to, it's better than not having the seven steps, but then you have to adapt it. You know, you have to really, that's what makes you really good, is the ability to adapt it to the situation. You know, I, I always joke with people, Bolelli, that I, I envy accountants and mathematicians <laughs> because a seven is always a seven. Yes. Sir. A seven never wakes up one morning and says, I feel like a six today. Right. Today, tomorrow, I'll feel like an eight. You know, there it's yeah. mathematics. It's just like, boom, right? When it comes to people, it's like, there's no consistency, man. As they grow, something changes, right? And the, the yeah. gym is such a live place for this. Like, I, I'm, I, I'm like, sometimes I'm, a, I'm the owner of the gym. But I'm a spectator, too. I just like to observe. Yeah. And to me, it's fascinating to watch how quickly things change. And, you know, it's the, the, the people factor, right? That's oh, yeah. fascinating. Yeah, I think that uh, 
like you were saying, there is a no seven steps, but I think like we said, there, there are certain principles that apply, but how you get there is going to be different for each one of them. Yeah. You know, I think if you're talking about kids, discipline is important, but how you administer discipline is going to vary from, you know, person to person. So yeah, like with the, the teaching and whatnot, like I said, I think being making people comfortable is the primary step to stay in the good mood. Now, how you do that is different. Like you said, People who force humor, it's a disaster. And, you, know, you never want to do that. If you're not funny, you're not funny. Don't roll. <laughs> Don't try to do it. You got to make people comfortable some other way, you know? But uh, I, I think that's probably one of the easier things to do because there are certain rules that taboos that people make that when I see them, like, oh, you know, you don't want to do that. Like, I think the easiest one to catch is when someone's making a mistake and the professor goes, no, 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 no. What are you doing? Yeah. yeah, like, yeah. You instantly yeah. just put that exactly. That's the reaction. People get, and they recoil physically and mentally. Yep. And now that you've locked them up yep. and you just like, uh, we, we try to tell our instructors, uh, you want to make it so that every class that student is one day closer to getting a black belt. Mm -hmm. right? And if you've made that person recoil, you've just made them take a step back. For sure. Because right? now there's a, a better likelihood that they might want to quit one day because they had such a negative experience associated with trying to learn martial arts. And they will end up saying, oh, I just wasn't built for it, you know? Yeah. And it wasn't that, it was just you had a bad coach or a coach had a bad moment and that tainted your experience, you know? So I think that's an easy one to catch. We always, we use what we call the PCP rule, which is a praise, correct praise. I like yeah. where, you know, you make them comfortable, then you give them the suggestion and then you make them comfortable again. Yeah, that's I, I call it a sandwich. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's in this, between. No, we'll give it's, you. The, it's the third sandwich because yeah. what's in the middle is, <laughs> is, the, is that you rip them a new one, you know, and then you put another layer of bread on top. I'm like, okay, it's not too bad. Yeah, I think right. that's a, that's yeah. something that works in all areas of life. Yeah, it's all true. areas of life. I like that you say that because I'm hammering on the exceptions on the you know the older. You always have to adapt principle. You always have to. It's constantly changing. But there are some principles that are good principles. And then, yes, sure, you need to adapt it, but it's better to have those principles and then learn how to adapt them as you go along than to just say, there are no principles, figure it out as you go. No, it's not, that's a terrible idea. You know, it, it's a balance of both, of having a structure and then making that structure flexible enough to tailor it and to adapt it as time goes by. But, but I agree. I mean, some principles are certainly better than that. I mean, even like, in teaching college, for example, something that now in the post-coronavirus world, I don't know how that's going to apply, but, you know, it's like one thing I did that was so basic and so simple, and yet nobody did it, and it set the mood for the room in the first two minutes. When I walk into a new course, first thing I did was uh, I put on some music, and I go around shaking hands and passing the syllabus. I haven't said one word, and half of the students love me already, because it's like, whoa. You're a human being. You treat me like a human being. You look me in the eyes. And when you think about it, I haven't done anything that's complicated. I press play to some music and I shook hands. That's it. But just by itself, that makes everybody more comfortable. And then it was like, okay, now you start, uh, you start the game ahead already before you even started it, right? That's an easy principle, you know, try to make people feel comfortable immediately in, in ways that seem to be designed to work for most human beings. Yes. So 
principle is good and then you adapt it. But, you know, it, it's good to have those ideas for sure. And that's a great one that you're doing because physical contact is one of the ways of making people comfortable. A handshake, we call it, it's part of what we do three times in every class is try to make physical contact with somebody yep. because it, it does connect you physically, you know, and mentally it does that connection as well. But the, that's also going back to the principles. I think when people see a subject that's very complicated, they're like, oh, you just have to wing it. You got to do it your way. And I think that's just being lazy. Yeah. Right, because yeah. the problem is, is just it's very challenging, right? Because there's so many variables. Rather than actually try to break it down, people, are, you know what? It, it just varies from people. It's just complicated, you know. Like, yeah. no, that's lazy. You know, like you you wouldn't take that answer for other things, you know, if it was simpler to handle. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So I think it just it's it's a process, and there's a lot of it that you know, as Robert said, there's so much variation mm -hmm. that we'll probably never you know, in our lifetime, see and be able to categorize, oh, this is how everything in human psychology works, one-on-one, -on -one. you know, like, no, it's not going to get there, but we can at least start putting out the blocks, you know, like, finding those core things and, and be better at it, because it would be better to have, I mean, I went through, like, I forget how many years of school, and I maybe had, like, two or three instructors that I would remember that were good, you know, and that's sad, you know, yep. like, it shouldn't be that few, ideally, all of them should be great, at something in particular, you know? Um, you know, you, you, Boleli has mentioned, Bonita, the, 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 I think we were talking once, it might have been on the, 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 your podcast, we were talking about the balance. I don't remember where, where we had this conversation, it might have been over Thai food, but you were talking about balance, right? And even in regards to what we're talking about, like there is that balance between following the guidelines, because there are guidelines for everything. People do operate under certain there's a lane, you know, just that the lane does this right here. You have to know when to when to go with the flow. So having the, the, the intelligence, the wisdom, right, to be able to adapt as the changes come along, you know, without losing track of what the north is, you know, because it can be it can be if, if you swerve too much to the right, too it off to the left, you're going to get out of, you know, you're off the lane now. And that's um, yeah, then they're off track. But. Certainly. And I think going back to the cooking example, you know, yes, you're not going to become a master chef by following the recipe. You know, to become the master chef, you're going to have to develop that special ability to see tiny little changes, tiny little. But having a recipe is a hell of a good start. <laughs> you know what I yes. mean? Like you're going to cook a lot better with the recipe. <laughs> so you're going to get something good. <laughs> then you want to become exceptional. You need to move beyond the recipe. But without the recipe, you don't even make it pretty good. You know, it's just... So it's a balance between structure and improvisation. Yeah, so I always say, because my girlfriend always likes to call me a chef. I'm like, no, I, I follow recipes well. Right. Uh, so I, so I'm, a, I'm a good cook. If you give me a recipe, I can do it. I think yeah. a chef is someone who creates the recipes. Yeah, right? yeah. Someone who's yeah. able to inspire. Uh, I wanted to ask you something, because you said uh, you do have a, a girlfriend who you're coaching in MMA. That must be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> How did that come about? Well, she's a, she has a really interesting personality. She's impossible to argue with. She's super relaxed, always happy, very quiet, and very just this mellow Zen energy all the time. And she's clearly kind of naturally. Some people have you know that type of body. She's a good athlete. She picks up things quick. And so she started. Uh, I think originally she started training boxing. 
with my boxing coach because my boxing coach wanted to help me out. There really was nothing he could do at the time to help me. But I said, hey, you know, can you hook her up with some teaching because she's got no money? But can you? And he was like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Send her in. And so she started training and she got really good really fast. And so then she was like, yeah, enjoy this. I'll add jujitsu to this. And then, you know, add one piece to the puzzle to another. Then she was like, oh, maybe I should compete. Let's see how it feels. And even that first experience was so trippy because, you know, we are, you know, low level, local California event, you know, one of those pro events on the reservation kind of thing. And, you know, it's a mess, you know, in the locker room. And it's like, there's the guy sitting next to you, goes out to have his fight, come back five minutes later, he's bleeding everywhere. And then you're like, okay, get ready, you're next. <laughs> and I'm dying, right? Like my heart rate is just like, and I look at her and she's like, it's good, relaxed, whatever. Yeah. And I'm like, how's at that point, I'm like anthropologically fascinated. Like, what's going to happen when she goes into the cage? Is she going to wake up? Is she going to turn it on? Is she going to be too sleepy? What is... And he was downright freaky because they touched gloves and she finished the fight in 16 seconds with a one-punch KO. Oh, wow. And in female MMA, you do not see. And, sure. and in training, too, she's way too nice. Like, people go way hard sometimes in sparring and she never put the heat on, she's always just touching them. And I'm all like, okay, I can see you have the power. I hit, see you hit the bag, but you know, can you turn it on when it counts? And apparently she could. And so we were all like, our, everybody's jaw dropped because you're like, holy shit, how did she do that? You know? But yeah, psychologically it's trippy because I'm a million times more tense than she is. Like I can't even watch the fights. Like I just get too like, especially when she started fighting for one, uh, you know, she comes on TV and I just have to go to the other room and take a walk and I'm back. I'm kind of like, I peek from behind the couch. I see <laughs> that as like, <gasps> and I'm hyperventilated where she's all like smiles and walking up to the cage. And, but yeah, it's difficult because you are so invested and there's nothing you can do about it because it's not yourself going through it. So I found it that, you know, I'll help with little technical things, I'll help with ideas, but I cannot handle the day-to-day -day operations because it's emotionally too weird. So I'm more than happy that she found a great coach. They get along great, he's really good to wear, he's very balanced. So, you know, I, I don't think, uh, I don't know how people do it when they are in a relationship and they are the person's coach all the time. That takes a skill that I don't have. I think that's always very challenging. Even, I mean, when you talk about uh, business and being in family, it's always such a tricky thing to do. I always tell people, try to avoid that when you can. Because if you think you fight with your spouse or something a lot, imagine when you're doing business with them and things go wrong. It's like, oh. So I can only imagine fighting the, the levels of it. I know you sound like my brother since my brother, he could never corner me. Right. For MMA, grappling, he didn't have a problem, but for some reason with MMA, he was just a total wreck and he would just have other people uh, corner me because he would feel like he's having a heart attack. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, that's funny for me. Like, I, I, I do agree with you that I feel like mentally coaching is more stressful because you don't have the control. You have like the illusion of being able to suggest something. Right. But, but that's really about it. You know, the it's a suggestion. They could take it or they can't. And you're just helpless there. And when you care about someone, especially your, it's, you know, your girlfriend or your significant other, that's, 
I imagine it must be a whole another level of stress stacked into it. Yeah, it's I'm not built for it. I'm like the weeks before she has a fight, I'm just a wreck. It's just yeah, not good. I, I've been there twice, you know. I've been married to fighters twice and it's uh, it's very very difficult because there's no way they can separate what goes off the mats and yep. what goes inside. Like they to me Maybe there's something wrong with me. To me, I, but like I know where that line is. Yeah, I know where that line is. Off the mats, on the mats. But like it, with relationships, most like you know people don't have that. Always have that ability. I feel like, but um, but well, you also have like a man. I met. I had the opportunity to meet your daughter. Mm-hmm. She's such a bright girl, man. Amazing job as a father. Like I was blown away. Her vocabulary, That's the true. things she would say. I'm like, man, she's like smarter than most adults. She's like nine, ten, or something. <laughs> Yeah, no, she's a freak for sure. It's, uh, I mean, it's like she she reads all the time. I mean, I kid you not, she reads in the shower. Like she'll put the book outside of the shower <laughs> while she's lathering up and putting shampoo. She's like, it's like, Jesus, man, what is, and yeah, she's, uh, sometimes I forget about it because, you know, I'm, I live with her all the time. So we talk all the time. I think it's semi-normal. Like I think like, ah, she's smart, whatever. But then I stopped to think about it. It's like, wait, I'm having this conversation with a 10-year-old that I wouldn't have with most people who are 40. Yeah. Is that even... And that's where I think, you know, again, that's nature-nurture thing. Some of the way she grew up, it helped for sure. But some of it is just who she is. Some of it is just of the draw, you know. No, but amazing. It was just like, I I noticed it the first time I met her. And then I I read your book, too, about being a... Dad is very beautifully written. I thought it was an amazing book, by the way. And, um, you know, tell us a little about that experience, too, about, you know, what is it like, you know, raising, raising your daughter in, in a, it's, it's tough times. It's always tough times, you know, but I feel that it's extra challenging, you know, being, being a single parent that you were for so long. Yeah, of course. Yeah, because that was like, talk about a really fucked up time in my life, you know, it's like, when uh, my daughter was born in 2009 and then when she was uh, about a year and a half her mom died from a brain tumor so you know you go to having especially you know in that little kids in everybody's life a mom is a big deal but in a little baby's life that's like everything right you're joined at the hip with your mom you are literally feeding off her in breastfeeding and all of that and so to have her mom gone and suddenly I have to take, not just center stage, I have to take all the stages. It's just me 24 hours a day and there's nothing else. You know, it's obviously a lot of pressure on anybody. You know, if uh, for women, it's almost expected, like single moms, when bad things happen and they have to have a bunch of kids, people are like, eh, you know, you're built for it. Where I'm not so sure that's the case, but regardless, with me, people look at me like some kind of hero where I'm like, dude, I'm doing the same thing that any single mom does. You know, I'm not doing anything. But of course, it's, uh, it's trippy because you feel that I mean, they depend on you for everything, right? If you don't watch them 24-7, particularly when they are that little, they pretty much find ways to kill themselves every second. <laughs> <laughs> 24 hours a day, the practically you have to be on, and yeah. then emotionally, and that was the weird part, because clearly I'm not at the happiest time in my life, and I cannot just say, okay, I'll take care of things. I'll make sure to have a roof over her head and food and change the diapers. No, she's a little baby. I have to make her happy. 
I have to make sure that she gets smiles, that she gets all these. When in my life, I'm not feeling I'm in a space where I'm all smiley and happy. You know, it's like I've been hit with really hard stuff and I'm in my own kind of grieving period, but but I have to do it on a clock. It's like, okay, grieve for five minutes because then she wakes up and you have to be happy and make her. And, you know, that's rough because it's 24 seven. You know, if it's for an hour, you do it, great. You can put your best face forward for a little bit. 24 seven, good luck. Because eventually whatever frustration you're bottling up inside is gonna come out. And so I would find myself doing things where I don't know, like I've noticed times when, you know, she's a baby, so she'll uh, spill her milk on the floor or do some other stupid baby stuff that upset you or make your life miserable for five minutes. And I'm blowing up, I'm all mad, I'm all like yelling at her and I'm like, good job, Daniela, you just yell at a little kid who just lost her mom because she spilled milk on the floor. What the hell is wrong with you? You know, and it's like, and you understand where it comes from, you know, you have so much frustration and grief and stuff inside. But nobody cares. It's a little kid who doesn't need your stupid crap. You know, it's like you find a way to deal with your emotional bullshit because you cannot take it out on a little kid. <laughs> Easier said than done, of course, because it's so hard sometimes. And it's uh, and that has been like a real look in the mirror for myself, because so many times I found myself feeling like I was a good dad and doing a good job. And then other moments where I'm like, you're just a piece of crap. You just took out your stuff on yelling, traumatizing some poor kid who already has trauma in her life. What, you know, what the hell is wrong with you? And then you have to do a real quick check and like, okay, well, you screwed up. Now fix it. You know, now go back and do a better job because there's no point beating yourself up from here to forever make it better, make it where you are better tomorrow, where you build that muscle to deal with the little daily frustrations. And uh, it's an experience, I tell you. It's, um, I mean, I'm super happy with how she handles stuff and how she handles life and the way she learns. I found myself being just monstrously honest with her. You know, I don't know how I would have done it otherwise, but in this contest, I definitely found that being very straight with her, like not selling her fairy tales or hiding things from her, but just telling her exactly what I'm thinking. Like I always related to her, like you're a human being who understands things like anybody else who's smart. You just happen to have a slightly smaller vocabulary and less experience. But, you know, you can under, I don't have to hide the six from you. You can, I can explain exactly how I feel, what I'm thinking. And, and she responded very well to that. Like wow. one of my things was like, I never tell her no about something. Like I, she wants to do something. I don't tell her, no, you can't do it. I'm your dad. And I lay the rules. She's always like, look, I got two goals here. I want you to be healthy and I want you to be happy. As long as those two goals are satisfied, you can do whatever the hell you want. I don't care. I'm not going to put any limit on you. But I think we have the same goal because you want to be happy and you want to be healthy. So we're not having an adversarial relationship here. We are absolutely on the same team. We just have to come up with the best strategy to deliver those things. If you can show me that those two things are satisfied, do whatever you want. I'm not going to tell you no at anything if we can agree on making those two things a priority. Great way of approaching it. I mean, I, I don't have kids yet, but it, 
the honesty, I think most people resort to lying because they lack trust in that person's ability to handle the information being given. Yep. Right? And when you can believe in somebody and who else could you believe in more than that you should believe in more than your kids, you know, yep. and you can give them that trust and say, I'm going to give you real information and hope, you know, I, I believe you can handle it. I think it does a lot for the relationship because by you giving them trust, that in turn extends the trust back onto you. Mm -hmm. like, it's like the easiest way to get a secret from somebody is to give, give them one of your secrets. Yep. Because people like to reciprocate, you know? So I think that's a novel approach in a, in a world where people are trying to be more sheltered yep. and hide more things from people. That's ever increasingly difficult with, with these guys <laughs> yeah. so uh, at some point everybody's gonna know everything so you might as well learn it from you then a secondhand source you know i had read about that you know what had happened with your with your your wife and i would think that having the baby would have probably been as maybe a saving grace for you i, I can't decide because you had to strengthen up. You, you, you couldn't, you know, retreat and say, I'm just going to become depressed and mm -hmm. go down that path because you had that responsibility to, to center yourself. For sure. For sure. It's, you know, you can navel gaze and feel like the universe is so terrible. Why, why me kind of thing? You can't when you have that 24-7 responsibility. Now, that's a double-edged sword because, of course, on one end, it keeps you more emotionally centered. On the other end, I think I probably, even though consciously I wasn't doing it, I think I probably repressed some emotions that came back to haunt me physically. Like I started breaking down physically from stress where I would get stupid injuries and stupid things that I wouldn't get otherwise. And so I'm like, okay, I can't just power through it. I also need to deal with my own emotions. And that's part of moving through well. But yeah, it's a tough line between those two, between, uh, you know, allowing yourself the time and attention to grieve, while at the same time not do it so much that you just fall into the spiral where you never get out, you know? You know, I, you, while you're telling me your story and like, you know, and having to raise a child while doing, going through all this, I, first of all, I can't imagine, like sometimes I, I, I think about some of the things that I've been through life and then I'll like listen to stories like this and I always like just want to slap myself in the face. Like, you are privileged, you are lucky, stop whining, you know, hold the line, you know, but we, we all have our, our moments. Yeah. But, you know, what, what happens is, is I feel that, like, I, I've never been through anything like that. But I've had some, you know, some ups and downs in life, too. But what I always notice is that, you know, you come out of it, like, with something, it's either stronger, wiser. And in your case, it sounds to me, you came out of it, not just a better version of yourself. But I think that the real treasure is not the self-development and growth. I think that the real treasure is the bond you have created with your daughter. Sure. Because it sounds to me that you've created a bond with her, like leaning on her while she leaned on you in a way that it's, you see what I'm saying? If you, you like, you, you get some people that lean into you, like a small arch, you guys created this massive arch, like it's leaning on that love, you know, on that cornerstone that holds you guys together. And Man, like that's invaluable. Like I feel that parents have connection. Every parent has a connection to their child, right? But you know, it sounds to me that your connection runs very, very deep because of you know of of everything that happened. 
Yeah, in fact, I'm really curious to see what it's going to be like. Because, uh, you know, you always hear the horror story of everybody scared of when the kids are teenagers. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm, I may be completely naive about it, but I'm totally relaxed now about it. Like, I don't see it going wrong. Then again, events can prove me wrong a hundred times. And maybe I'll go like, oh, when I naively and stupidly believe that it all would work out. But right now, I'm like, Usually you get that rebellious stage because you set some hard line discipline-wise. Whereas to me, my whole gig has been to instill an internal discipline in there where it doesn't come from me. I'm not the one telling you no. You just learned how to tell yourself no when something is a stupid idea. But it's not. So I, I'm curious to see how she handled it because, you know, there really isn't that in order to rebel, there has to be that something that push back against you. If there's nothing that pushing against you and it's like you have complete freedom as long as you make smart choices, it's an interesting, uh, I'm curious to see how it develops over time. But yeah, it's funny because right now, for example, she's super protective of me. Like anything that bothers me, she pays so much attention trying to help me, trying to make sure I'm in a... I'm like, Jesus, you're 10. I'm the one who's doing it. <laughs> I do that with her, but she way does it right back with me. Like she's super attentive to my moods, to helping me out, to making life easier for me and all of that. And I'm like, wow, you're awesome. You know, and again, things are going to change, but I don't know. Let's see. I'm, I'm really curious. I'm, I'm honestly curious to see how it's going to pan out. I think you'll be all right. I, the, my parents, I told Robert all the time, they kind of, they, they raised me kind of like hippies because we didn't have curfews. We didn't have like, we could drink if we wanted to, you know, we could do just about anything. And um, never had, I never went to drink, never done any drugs, right. never went partying and stuff like that. And it's like you said, there wasn't a thing like, oh, I'm gonna do this to piss my parents off. It, it, because they didn't really set that many limits on us. So it was easy to, like like yeah. you said, you kind of internalize your discipline. Like, well, I don't want to, you know, mess myself up because I'm not going to feel well afterwards. Exactly. That's kind of the drinking thing is perfect, right? It's a great example because it's like to me, even I'm especially growing up in Italy, nobody tells you don't drink. It's like, you know, your, pa your grandparents are having wine over lunch or dinner. And so you get curious when you're a little kid and you want to try and they'll give it to you. But they'll tell you, you know, have a little bit. And, you know, you can enjoy it, but if you have too much, then you get a headache and you feel like crap. Why would you do that to yourself? And, you know, one day you have a CP extra and you do get a headache and you're like, oh, I see your point. And you learn how to drink, basically, where, you know, you learn how to drink in a good measure where you can be happy and get that little buzz. And that's where it stops. Anything past that point is not going to feel so good. And then I came to US where, you know, illegal, under 21 and all of that. And I would see my friends who just get wasted and they are throwing up all over yourself. And I'm like, ew, gross. Why would you do that to yourself? That just made no sense to me. I'm like, can we just have one drink and it's enjoyable? Why do we need to have 10? You know, it's like, what's yeah. the... It backfires, right? The repression always backfires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, it's teaching people... And I think it's funny, like parents are freaked out when talking about sex. They are not comfortable talking about sex with their kids, drinking, all those things that are just normal parts of life. It's like, what's the big deal? Why do you have to hide? You know, what's the... Uh... And I understand it, you know, like I remember when my daughter, I got trapped in the car with her once where we're on this long road trip. And I guess, you know, in a movie or something, sex came up. So she started asking me questions. 
I kid you not, she asked me sex questions for like three hours. And I was <laughs> and you know, you feel a little weird initially, but then I'm like, why am I feeling weird? What's there to be feel weird about? You know, she's she's a kid, she's not an idiot, she can understand stuff, and it's right. like okay, then we're good. And and not make a big deal out of it because you know they it's it, it does blow up in your face like just like food kids that are not allowed to eat junk food yeah. guess what's gonna happen as soon as they can you know sure. but yeah I mean I think you're doing an amazing job and I think that the way what Dave described and what you're describing is kind of how I was raised my mom always gave me like so much freedom sometimes I look back and I'm like why what, why am I not a crackhead <laughs> right. I, I, I didn't have to do my homework. I can go to bed anytime I wanted. If I didn't want to go to school, all I had to do was say, like, I don't want to go to school today. I didn't even have to explain why I didn't want to go. But when you have that freedom, you don't abuse it. You're like, why would I not go to school? Like, you know, and my friends are at school, so you end up going to school, right? But um, no, man, like, I think that it's, it's uh, you're definitely on the right track. I, I'm curious because as a parent, too, I always ask these questions to other parents that I feel are doing a good job just to make sure I'm on the right track because that is the ultimate job, right? We're talking about being a fighter, being a coach, being a good businessman, whatever. It's like, it's probably the most challenging thing you'll ever do is being a parent. And man, you gotta make sure you do a good job. Like we got enough fuckheads out there already. So <laughs> everyone listening, please don't mess that up, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's a, and it gets easier every year. You know, it's like, they don't tell you that, but like when your kid is one year old and wake up screaming at 3 a.m., you know, you want to, throw them out of the window it's perfectly not don't act upon that impulse but the impulse is natural you know it's like it's frustrating and then every year it gets easier and especially if you establish good communication the more they can communicate the easier it gets early on is a little rough <laughs> definitely the first few years are intense well, that's the whole thing right because the baby can't really communicate with you yeah. and you you want to say something to it it doesn't understand you and as you say, it gets easier. Why? Because once you're able to communicate with each other and rationalize things, then it's easier to understand what each other needs, you know? Yep. And like you said, like I think what you had set those baseline goals earlier, that, that's a very smart way of putting it, you know, uh, health and happiness. And then we might disagree on the means of getting there, yep. but at least we want the same things for each other. Which is huge, because yeah. then again, is like just then we're gonna disagree on strategy, maybe. And strategy we can negotiate about is not a big deal. You know, we can figure out as long as the goals are the same. Then strategy is easier to to have a disagreement upon than if you have fundamentally different goals. That's where, and you know, even the freedom thing is like some kids may not respond well to it, and they need more discipline and they need more strict rules. And that's where you need to have that ability to realize, hey, these kiddies, that's what they need. Okay, lay down the low a little more. They do get too lazy if you give them too freedom. Okay, you do need to light a fire under their ass a little more. And there's nothing wrong with it, as long as you're doing it with the right kid. Because, you know, if you put all this harder restriction on a kid who does not thrive on it, then you got a problem. You know, then it's a bad idea. Yeah, that's what my, my brother was telling me, because uh, he has three kids, uh, a daughter and twin boys. And he's like, Dave, you know, if I let my kids eat whatever they want, they're just going to eat ice cream and candy all day. <laughs> so I have to be put some discipline in there. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, fair enough. You know, they, they don't know enough yet to understand how to make their proper choices, right? So I, I'm not advocating either just like free, wild hippiness, you know, just like. <laughs> but I mean, even that I think is important. It's like, look, if I have that situation, and of course, you know, both me and my daughter have a major sweet tooth, right? So we can very much relate. 
But like, I feel the exact same way. How would I eat that three, just fill a pool with ice cream and I'm gonna eat it all. The problem is that I'm gonna be miserable and I'm gonna feel horrible and neither one of us wants that. So how can we get that in amounts where it's still healthy, where we enjoy it, we don't deny ourselves, but to a point where we still enjoy life and it doesn't mess us up, you know? And, and then it becomes that strategy discussion. It's like, okay, where do we draw the line where we're good, where is not? And then it becomes her choice too, right? It becomes like she has to think about, she has to figure out what the right line is and all of that. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting process, that's for sure. Yeah, I think now with nutrition, it's interesting because I know I heard my niece talking about, oh, how many calories does this have? How much protein does this have? I'm like, you're too young. To about this. Yeah. <laughs> right, but I think like most, I think when at least I'm not old, but like we didn't really have a mind for that yet, you know, as far as like what things have proper nutrition as a kid. But I think now the information is so out there. For I sure. think all kids can look at the label. Oh, what does this mean? And I think it'd be explained to them earlier because she was like, oh, I shouldn't eat this. It has too much fat. I should eat something like this. I'm like, well, that's, again, more information. They're able to make better decisions towards those life goals, you know? And I think in that regard, having uh, the least it's a black and white thing, the better it is. You know, most things you can do in moderation. Now, the moderation, well, of course, no. Math kids do not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, math is a bad idea, no yeah. matter what. Okay? But, you know, so there are a few things that are just flat out bad, right? That there is no moderation about. <laughs> you know, most stuff, most stuff, you can have a little as long in a certain amount is fine, but when you pass that amount, that it's a problem. And I think, you know, it, even having that mentality where it's like, it's not a yes or no thing, it's how much yes can still be good and where that yes become a problem for the rest of your life. Yes. And working on that, because then it's easier. It's like, okay, you're not being a dick who's just telling me no to everything that looks fun. You're just wanting me to feel good and have a good life. Okay, we can work with that. Yeah. Yeah, it goes all back to what you were saying before, which is balance. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's life, really, right? Most everything is like that. There are, again, there are a few things that are bad in all contexts, and I'm sure there are a few things that are good in every situation, but most stuff is, it's a balancing act. You go too far one direction, uh, even you took a good thing and made it a bad thing, and vice versa. It's, uh, I hate, because it sounds like I'm paraphrasing, I'm quoting that book, like the many shades of gray, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> but that's life, it's the many shades of gray that we live in, because you're right, like there are very few things that are like absolutists, right? Yeah. Like meth, crack, yeah, yeah. never. <laughs> Pretty bad. But, you know, love love is always good. But even love, I think, sometimes can be too much, you know, sure. like, or not love, but like misguided love. Let's yeah. rephrase that. Because, you know, you get that the, the parents who does so much for their kids out of love and they're actually doing more, they're doing harm without realizing, right? Absolutely. Without allowing them to learn some of the tough lessons that, you know, they, we, they all, we all need to learn, right? Otherwise, you walk away from your childhood, you don't learn those lessons. They're going to be they're gonna hit you really hard in your adult life, right? But, um, uh, uh, Dave, you got anything else you want to ask, man? Like, Bolette, you want to plug anything? All good. 
No, go ahead. I mean, you obviously plug your podcast and your books, and then you're very... Yeah, so the ones, let's see, stuff I've done, I have uh, two podcasts, uh, The Drunken Taoist, which is, you know, free on all platforms, is more of a chatty podcast, sometimes with guests, sometimes without. Uh, History on Fire, I have a ton of free episodes out there, then some of the new ones are behind the paywall, they are with this company called Luminary, they are pretty cheap, I think they're like $3 a month or something like that, but still. That's the new ones, but if people who haven't checked it out, there are a ton of free episodes before you ever get to the paywall. Uh, I wrote a few books, a couple of them have to do with martial arts. My first one was called On the Warrior's Path, that's all, you know, martial art philosophy. And the latest, uh, Not Afraid, is about that period of, you know, it, as a good chunk, it's about martial arts. And then it's more about how I applied some of those things to my life when kind of everything was falling to pieces. So those are the, those are the ones. Okay, I, I got one final question before we let you go, Bolelli. How do you, how do you manage to be a professor, a single dad, a martial artist, and still find the time to do two podcasts and a book. I need to get private from you in time <laughs> management because I don't know how you do it, man. I find myself like running around trying to do everything. And I don't want, there's not enough, not many hours in the day. Like, yeah. How do you do it? Uh, I'm up till, re well, I actually do get my sleep, but mainly in the morning. I'm up till really late after everybody's asleep. I have my hours on my own, that helps. I'm also, most of these things I tend to enjoy. So I'm also pretty driven, like the time that I'm not uh, spending with my daughter, most of the time I am working on something. And, you know, whether it's, if anything is funny, I always feel like, you know, you list all those things and I'm like, oh yeah, I do do a lot of stuff, but I always feel like, man, there's so much other stuff I want to do and I can't quite, if I only had better time management and, you know, so it's, I think it's, uh, we all feel that way. It's uh, one of those things, but uh, yeah, I'm trying to, it's it's a this weird act of like you have ten balls up in the air and you have to catch them all and you're juggling and you're, but uh, it helps the fact that they are all things I enjoy, um, some more some less, but they are all things that are enjoyable to one degree or another, and uh, so it work it is work, but it doesn't feel like work you know like I hate this thing it's never like that it's. Uh, it's definitely time consuming, but it's usually stuff that I want to do. Perfect. Perfect. Excellent. Did, anything else? Uh, I think we can wrap it up. Daniele, thank you so much for joining us. It's great having you here. And again, uh, you have your website, danielbolelli.com. I'll link it there. Go make sure to check them out. And, uh, Again, look forward to seeing you in the future. It's finally great to see you in person and talk to you live. Hopefully one day I can visit you and we can yeah. do it over lunch or something. When we get through the apocalypse, that would be very nice to do a live version. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you guys so much for right. having us. Thank you, Bolelli. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure, man. All right. Stay healthy. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation that we had with Daniele. If you want to learn more from him, you can visit his website, danieleebolelli.com. Again, link is in the description here. And uh, he has various podcasts like History on Fire and The Drunken Taoist. Those are two great podcasts. You can check them out. And he has various books as well. Again, visit his website, uh, danieleebolelli.com. Look at the description for the, the link. 
And uh, please send your feedback, comments, suggestions, all that. Uh, we're always looking forward to hearing from you guys and learning more about improving our craft. Thank you very much and have a wonderful day. A final word from one of our sponsors, which is the Drysdale BJJOnline.com website. And uh, that's Robert's video portal where you can access various courses that he offers there. Uh, very affordable and He's got, I think, like 10 or 12 different courses there, and they're very specific. So you have, like, the 10 best guard passes, 10 mount escapes, you know, half guard sweeps. And his most recent course, he filmed with number one ranked IBJF uh, black belt, Felipe Andrew, on straight footlocks with the gi. But, of course, those straight footlocks will work just fine without the gi, too. All right, they, this is just more for like IBJF legal leg locks, really. Uh, but of course, you can do it without. And I would definitely recommend you check it out because he's got a killer straight foot lock and he has a unique variation that's not commonly taught. So definitely worth the investment. So go ahead, visit DrysdaleBJJOnline.com to learn more.